everyone, I'm Cheryl McNeil Fisher. Dr. Kathy King and I want you to know you are important to us. We are thrilled that you're here with us today for another episode of Writing Works Wonders. Welcome to Writing Works Wonders. We're so pleased you're with us for this extraordinary interview with New York Times bestselling author, Reese Bowen. It's a great privilege for us to have her on Writing Works Wonders today, and we look forward to discovering the secrets behind her works of mystery and historical fiction. We want to encourage your writing success, and I'm so pleased to introduce all of you to our guest author, Reese Bowen. Reese Bowen is a New York Times bestselling author who has been nominated for every major award in mystery writing, including the Edgar, and has won many, including both the Agatha and Anthony Awards. She is the author of the Royal Spinous Mystery Series set in 1930s London, the Molly Mystery Series set in turn-of-the-century New York, and the Constable Evans Mysteries set in Wales. She has also written several self-standing novels, including in Fairly Field, The Tuscany Child, and Victory Garden. Her books blend historical fiction, mystery, humor, and romance. She was born in England and now divides her time between California and Arizona. I'm so pleased she has accepted our invitation and we can share time with her today. So fire up your time machine and don't forget your spy glasses because it's mystery time with Reese Bowen. I'm Dr. Kathy King, and I'm so pleased to introduce you to my fabulous co-host, Cheryl McNeil Fisher. <laughs> Thanks, Kathy. Hi, everybody. We are so glad you're here with us today. And we so <laughs> thank you for being here with us. Our first question, of course, how did you get started in your career? Did you always want to be a writer? Was that something as a young girl you wanted to do? And, and how did it all begin for you? Well, my mother tells me that I wrote my first poem when I was four. So I probably have to say, yes, I've always thought of myself. I never thought of being a writer. Writer was just something I did. I was always living in the world of pretend. You know, I was always somebody else at home or always out in the woods pretending. When I was a, a teenager, I decided I wanted to be a movie star. And so naturally, I, I, I wrote my own scripts so that I'd have some good movies to star in. And um, they were all very dramatic, terribly sad. They always ended, you know, with someone sobbing. Um, there was one in which the hero goes up the Amazon and is lost, and she decides that life holds nothing for her, so she's going into the convent. There she is making her final vows while he's swimming back rapidly down the Amazon, and, and he reaches <laughs> the gates of the convent just to see he's too late, and he calls out, no, as the credits <laughs> rise at the end. They were all like that, terribly sad. <laughs> so in college, I edited, edited the college newspaper, and I thought I was probably going to go into journalism. And then I decided that was something I didn't think I could handle. I, I watched something in which the children had been killed, I think, and they were interviewing the mother, and I thought, I couldn't do that. And mm -hmm. so I went into the BBC, and I went in as a graduate trainee, and they let you try out all the different departments, and I wound up in BBC drama. So right, you know, there I was helping produce plays in BBC drama, and I find myself thinking, if I'd written this play, I wouldn't have ended it that way. So I wrote my own first radio play, 
I walked down the hall to the head of drama with the bravado of a 22 year old and said, I've written this play. And he called me in a few days later. He said, we really like this. We're going to do it. And I've been a published author ever since, really. So, you know, that was how I got started. And I think a particular interest for all of you is the fact that my career started with radio plays. I have a very good feel for not only the spoken word, but what words can do, because you don't have any scenery. You don't have any outside action to create create the tension in a scene. Everything you do has to be created through the words. You know, I'm very conscious of how you bring people into a scene, how they introduce themselves. And I think that stayed with me throughout my whole writing career. After the BBC, well, what happened was I got lured down to work for Australian television. I thought that'd be lovely, spend a few years in Australia in that sunshine. So I went down to Australia and I hadn't been there long when I met my future husband and he was on his way to California. He's another Brit. He's a very, very upper class Brit. And he was working in Australia at that time. So we wound up in California and I found really there was nothing like the BBC for me to go into. So I started writing children's books. They did quite well. I was asked to write uh, young adult books and they did even better. Then I suddenly found myself thinking, why am I not writing what I want, what I like to read? And I've always been a huge mystery fan. You know, I grew up with Agatha Christie and all the ladies of the golden age. It's always been my go-to reading. So I thought perhaps I should switch to writing mysteries. And um, I've brought us up so far. We can, we can go on from there if you want to. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. So over the years, are there any particular strategies that you have use that strike you that you have enhanced grow your different series? Well, the interesting thing was that until one point in my career, I always found that that mysteries were a great escape reading. You know, Agatha Christie, all of those, they're genteel. There's no, no violence on the page. They're in a nice, safe English village. They were great to read. You never get emotionally involved. Nobody ever weeps for the body in the library. <laughs> and so they were my go-to books when I was stressed. And then what drove me into writing mysteries again was I, I found Tony Hillerman. And I started reading Tony Hillerman. And for those of you who don't know, well, he's passed away now, but he wrote about detectives in the Navajo Southwest. And his, his detectives are Navajo cops. And so suddenly I'm reading books that take me not only to a time and place, but they give me an insight into a very different sort of people. And I found it absolutely fascinating. He took you there so much that the first time we did a tour of the Southwest, my husband is driving and I find I'm acting as tour guide. I'm saying, do you see that over there? That is called Shiprock. And you see that ledge, that's where the body fell from. You know, I knew everything about it because Tony Hillerman had brought it to life for me. I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to write mysteries that give you that fantastic feel of time and place that take you somewhere. And so my first series became the Constable Evans book set in Wales. My mother's family's Welsh, and I spent a lot of time growing up being taken to stay with relatives in North Wales. And um, I was telling a friend about it once, about the village that I used to stay in and the the quirkiness of it, because most people there are Welsh speaking. There are very few surnames in Wales. So you might have 10 people in one village called Evans. And so they each are given a nickname. In my books, you had Evans the meat, who was the butcher, and Evans the milk, who was the dairyman. 
there have been a lot of these and some of them have been really in other places been really amusing the welsh have a great witty sense of humor so there was a travel agent called evans there and back and then there was also there was an undertaker called evans one way so you know i was telling a friend about this and she said oh this is really interesting stuff have you have you ever put this in a book and i thought oh i do know this place i've been taken up Mount Snowdon by every single route because my aunt was a passionate hiker. I know how the people talk. I know all the funny little quirks. I know what the weather's like when it pours with rain and little ribbons of, of water rush down the steep mountainsides. And so Constable Evans really came to me fully clothed and said, hello, here I am. And I knew him pretty well from the very beginning. He was training. He was living in the city in the south of Wales, in the city of Swansea, and he was training to be a detective. And then his father, who was also a detective, was shot and killed in the line of duty. And Evan has a real crisis about whether he wants to stay in the police force, whether anything makes sense anymore. So he goes back to his grandfather's home in North Wales, which is very mountainous and rural and, and very sort of away from the world. He becomes a, a regular sort of village policeman, a community policeman, not involved in detecting but he hasn't been there long before a suspicious body is found on top of Mount Snowden. And he has to start to realize that he needs to find out what's behind this. So that was, you know, that was how the first series got started. And I really enjoyed doing those books. I think they were not historical. They were contemporary at the time because I started them in the mid nineties. You know, they had the, the fun, quirky villages and the pub and all the sort of things I loved about North Wales I put into them. Thank you so much, Reese. You headed off my next question and then you did it so wonderfully describing such terrific aspects of the Constable Evans series. I was wondering the background between Evans the meat and Evans the male and all of that. Now I understand much better. Thank you. <laughs> it's wonderful to be able to speak with you today, Reese. I know a lot of our readers and writers enjoy the way you teach us about history, what you were just describing so well, without us even knowing it, we're learning along the way as we're following the story. And it's such a joy to experience the way you seamlessly incorporate the historical geographical facts in your storylines simultaneously. The Wales one, you told us the background for that, that you actually visited there and were observing and experienced it. But I expect the other ones you had to do a lot of research for. Can you briefly describe your research process to us for, because you didn't live in the 1900s, turn of the century, <laughs> New York, and you didn't live pre-war Britain. So how did you do that research? It's interesting that Molly Murphy came about, well, I think all my books have come about by accident almost. Molly Murphy came about because I had a free afternoon in New York City and I hopped on the tour boat to go across to Ellis Island. I hadn't expected anything more than a filling up a free afternoon. And I was completely unprepared for the emotional overload I felt there. You know, I don't have ancestors who came in through Ellis Island. I really had no connection to it. But standing there, I just felt that the, wall, the walls were sort of crying out, that they saying, we have seen great joy and great sorrow. And I came back and started to research on Ellis Island. And, you know, I found out that some people who had come, they'd come from these terrible situations in Europe. They'd come from a famine or a burned village or a war. And when they got to Ellis Island, 
someone had welcomed them and that for the first time in their life, they'd had white, white bread, the first time in their life, they'd had a second helping of food. And then someone said to them, welcome to the United States. And all of their troubles were over. They had this chance to start a new life. But other people had come from similar situations and they'd got as far as Ellis Island and everything had gone wrong. Everybody had to have a medical inspection, for example. And I thought, what if you had five little kids and one failed the medical inspection and was not going to be allowed into the United States, what would you do? And I pictured the mother and the father looking at each other, and she'd say, well, I'll take her back, and the rest of you stay and have a good life. Father saying, no, no, we're not going to be split up, we'll all go back. But there was a burned village to go back to, and I thought, this is such emotional stuff, I have to put this into a book. And so Molly Murphy sort of came to me because I thought, I have to write about someone I can connect with. You know, I, I didn't come from a village in Italy. I didn't come from a village in Eastern Europe, but I am half Celt and I'm married to someone who's half Irish. So, you know, I have that great feeling for the Celtic mentality. And so Molly Murphy became a young woman in Ireland who accidentally kills the man who's trying to rape her. He's the landowner's son. She knows she'll get no justice. And so she runs for her life. And she gets a chance to go to Ellis Island using someone else's name. And while she's on Ellis Island, a murder occurs and the name she's using shows, shows up as the prime suspect. So that was the driving force behind Murphy's Law, which was the first book in the series. Molly Murphy gets to Ellis Island and this happens. And then she steps ashore in Manhattan. And I found myself thinking, oh, I know nothing about 1901 New York in Manhattan. I'm going to have to do a lot of research on every page. And that was really how it turned out to be. For those first books, what I did was, you know, I did a lot of reading, obviously, but I went to New York and I walked any street that I needed to do in the book. So I walked those streets. And of course, we're lucky because a lot of the Lower East Side hasn't really changed that much. You know, I can still take you up Mulberry Street and along, along Hester and along Essex, and the tenements are pretty much as they were then. Some of the streets have got the old granite blocks on them still. So I got a good feel for Molly Murphy's New York and, and everything that was going to happen to her visually, how long it took, how long did it take to walk from A to B. I've had letters over the years. You said, you said that Molly walked from blah to blah. That's completely impossible. And I write back and said, I did it. She's from the west coast of Ireland. She thinks nothing of walking five miles. And so, you know, she walked a lot in New York City. And I did those walks myself, so I can tell you. So a lot of reading in background work, you know, a lot of reading of politics, New York politics and all that sort of thing. But then all the little tiny research, I can't tell you to start with how many things I had to look up. For example, Molly is following someone, trying to see where they go. And she wants to take notes. And I thought, what did she use? She couldn't carry a pen and an inkwell. <laughs> well, you know, what did they have in those days? Could you get, you know, for fountain pens existing? Could you just buy a, a regular graphite pencil in a store in those days? So I had to look it up. And of course, fountain pens did exist, but they were a luxury item. There was no way she, she was incredibly poor. There's no way she could have afforded one. So I thought I'm going to have to improvise on this. And so she sees um, in a pawn shop, she finds a little lady's dance card with the attached pencil. 
And so she uses that as her notebook to start with. But there were so many of those things to start with. When she's getting undressed, what was she actually wearing? And then, you know, what were their shoes like? And I went to a lot of visiting museums in the early time. The New York Historical Museum has displays of costume. And I found the Historical Society of New York was wonderful. If I asked for a picture of a particular place, they could usually find me one. And I bought several books of photographs of New York interiors in 1900. If I'm in a particular room, I can describe it because I can see what I, I'm looking at in a room like that. That's how I gradually filled in at the beginning for each book. It's very much a different area of society that I've set each book in and a different driving force in the historical details. So, for example, one of the books uh, called The Edge of Dreams, Freud has just come out with his treatise on dreams, and that's going to play a big part in the story and how one solves it. So, you know, I read, had to read Freud's treatise on The Edge of Dreams for that. And then other books... There's one book in which a pharmacist is poisoning people. I had to know, you know, arsenic put into face powder, how much would you need? All those sort of things mm -hmm. you look up as you go along. But the thing is, I find the research is one of the most fascinating parts of the whole thing. Sometimes you can get down a whole rabbit hole of research. You look, you look at this and then it goes to that. You think, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. And suddenly you think, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be writing a book. And then you go back <laughs> The latest one that I've just finished, which I'm now writing with my daughter, which is a wonderful experience. We can talk about that later, but has to do with corruption in New York politics. And it's a mayor's race involving Tammany Hall and against William Randolph Hearst. So the research for that has been really interesting, too. Well, I have to tell you, I, like many of your readers, I expect, have wondered as I've been reading your books, are these real events or not? Are these real people or not? Are the times, the real times, or, or is she messing with things? And so I go in and I look up and sure enough, you're using a framework and details that are accurate. And so I realize that I'm learning along the way. And then by the time I get to the end of the book, usually the epilogue tells me very briefly what's true and what's fictional. And it's really fun, but you need to know that your readers are checking up on you. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. and I have to tell you the aspects about New York City. I worked in New York City for 14 years and I can see those streets. You did such a fabulous job. I can see those streets and it's just tremendous. So I believe you walk those streets. That's <laughs> terrific. Thank you for sharing. That really illuminates yeah. the process greatly. I've read most of your books <laughs> in the three series and almost all of the standalone novels. I am hooked. Reese, you have hooked me. <laughs> and it's somebody in the ACB community mentioned you, Carla from CCLVI in Kentucky. She mentioned you in passing on one of the calls. And I picked up Molly Murphy is who she mentioned. And I was hooked from the get go. I just love your books. Like I was saying in the pre-show, I was so disappointed when the Victory Garden ended. I wanted that book to continue. It's really exciting to see the separation between all these different books. You've got these series in such different time frames. How do you maintain all these different story worlds? You're publishing Molly Murphy and the Royal Spinus in alternate sequence. So how are you keeping these straight? Are you using charts, databases? Are you just schizophrenic? I mean, what's going on here? How do you keep all this straight in your head? <laughs> well, when I'm when I'm writing one, 
I am completely in that world. I don't try and sort of juggle a bit of a few chapters of Molly Murphy, then switch to the Royal Spinist, and then switch to the standalone. I'm currently doing two and a half books a year, which is crazy. It's I'm, mm. What happened was I put Molly Murphy on hold for, for a while because I'd written 17 books in that series. And there were so many other things I wanted to write about that I could write about in standalones. And I still love writing the Royal Spinus books because they're lighter, they're funny, and I find them very therapeutic to write. You know, I will sit at my computer and chuckle and I will call out to my husband, hey, listen to what Queenie just said, you know, so we can have a good laugh. But when I'm writing one of them, I am focused totally on that world to the point that I found before now that I'm writing a scene that takes place in the middle of winter. That, you know, one of the very beginning Molly Murphy books is she's in New York and she she's been turned out of the place she's staying and she could easily freeze to death. So I'm writing a book like that. And I suddenly think I need to put a sweater on and I go and put, uh -huh. a sweater, I put a sweater on. But actually, we're in the middle of summer and it's really quite warm. <laughs> so, you know, I am completely in my world while I write it. And what I have to do is because in, on normal years, I do two books a year. So I give myself three months, I think, to write a first draft of a Royal Spinus book. And I so I focused completely on that. I make myself write about 1500 words a day, about five pages a day. And if you know you can't stop until you've done those words, you do them. I write those words. Sometimes it's very easy and I, I do more than that and they come quite quickly. Other days I get up and I throw a load in the laundry. I walk around the house. I go out into the garden, but I know if I have to keep, keep on coming back until I've written the words, I write them. And sometimes I find myself thinking, oh, God, this was rubbish. You know, what on earth? And then the next day I read it and I think, oh, that wasn't quite as bad as I thought. Oh, that's all right. So every day I start by reading the words of the day before um, so that I've got something to go. I never look at a blank screen. So, you know, I work like that and I work till I've done a first draft. And then I have time to reread, rewrite give it to my beta readers and get some feedback on what they think. And then at the end of the six months, then it goes off to my agent and my publisher. But the, the spanner that has been thrown into these works, or I think in, in American, we have to say the wrench that was thrown into these works, is that my daughter came to me a year ago and she said, I'd really like to write the Molly Murphy series with you. And I was a little bit hesitant, A, because I thought I didn't have time, and B, because she's my daughter. What if it didn't work? And I had to say, no, sorry, you're a terrible writer. We can't do this. <laughs> but I said, well, we'll give it a try. And she's been amazing. She's the one who we talked about research. She will read the New York Times for every day that we're working in. And she will come back and say, there's a really interesting thing today, you know, so-and-so, there was an article about Tammany Hall, and I found out they were doing this on the docks, you know, so we get all these interesting little tidbits from the New York Times. And I have actually used the New York Times, the archives, the New York Times myself, and found really good plot assists from it. There was one book that was going to take place in, in September uh, 1905. So I look what, you know, what was happening, because if you're writing, as you say, I do frame all my books on a real time, real place, real events. I thought what was happening. And then I found there was a train crash of the elevated railway on September the 11th, no less. What had happened was that a train had been routed to the wrong track. And instead of going straight down the west side of Manhattan, 
It had been rooted around the track that the Sixth Avenue normally takes. It had come around the corner way too fast and gone off the tracks and plunged down to the buildings below. And 47 people were killed. And one of the cars is a, a very dramatic photo in the newspaper. One of the cars was left dangling over the edge. And I thought, oh, well, Molly would know about that train crash. So I have to bring that in somewhere. And then I thought, what if she was on that train? And then I thought, and what if the crash was deliberate? So there mm -hmm. I had a whole, a whole different avenue of exploration in that story that, that really made it so much richer. So, you know, looking at the real history is often a, a prompt to my, to my stories. Fabulous. We so appreciate the insight. Cheryl, do you think we should go to questions? First up, Dan Spoon, president of the American Council of the Blind. Hello, Reese. This is such an honor. I am an avid, avid fan. I have read the entire Molly Murphy series. I've read some of them twice. I mean, <laughs> I just, I love that. Uh, I love your writing style. And I just really, really love that point in, in American history. And as a blind person, it sounds funny. And I, I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. It I, I can relate so much to Molly and kind of what she's going through and her struggles of if she marries Daniel, is she giving up her independence? Is she giving up her assets? Just point out so clearly as people navigate through New York, depending on your wealth and privilege, you could be walking three miles and hoping somebody is there when you knock on the door, as opposed to someone down the street has the ability to call on a phone or use their new automobile. All these things you have, you know, some people are still dealing with gas and some already have electricity. It's was such an era of haves and have nots. And when you're, when you're hundred years removed, you just assume when electricity showed up, everybody got it. And when cars showed up, everybody got one like an iPhone and that didn't happen 120 years ago, or the right to vote and going next door and seeing Sid and the gals and it, just all these different struggles she's going through. And it just somehow is very relatable as a person with a disability of the different things you have to go through sometimes. And you strive to be normal, but then you're kind of still on the outside. And she was as an immigrant. So have you ever thought of any parallels between Molly's life and being a disabled person? Thank you. Yeah, well, well, hi, Dan. It's, um, it's interesting you should say that. My best friend in college was partially sighted. So I, all my life, have been very aware of limitations and how she's overcome them. And she is one of the most amazing people I've ever known in, in that she's let nothing stand in her way. After college, I went into the BBC and she tried to, she applied to the BBC and they said that they could see no position in which she would fit in. So she went into various other things and she became a broadcaster for a government radio station. She ended up hosting the BBC program for the blind called In Touch for many years. So she ended up as a very well-known BBC presenter. So she, she let nothing stand in her way. And Molly, I think, has the same sort of grit in that she starts with nothing. You know, she, she is not only an immigrant, but most immigrants who come in, come into some sort of family structure um, because they wouldn't let you, as a woman, they wouldn't let her in alone. 
if she was a, a lone single woman, she wouldn't have been allowed in because the prostitution was too big a, a danger. The fact is she comes in and she is able to stay with someone's family for us. I'm not giving any plots away here because I want people to read it, but um, she's able to stay with the family for a short time, but then she's kicked out. So what does she do? Where does she go? I mean, really all of the odds are stacked against a single woman alone in New York. So she had to have tremendous amounts of spunk just to survive. And she has done all along. And it's interesting that as I never intended this to be a treatise on women's rights, but as the series has gone along and she met Sid and Gus, who are her, her lesbian couple neighbors who are very much involved in the civil rights movement, but she, uh, women's rights, you know, have just become part of the story. Is it my right to do this? And then of course, as a wife, am I supposed to be completely subservient to my husband? When you look at New York in 1900, if I dropped you there, you would feel quite at home because not that much has changed. And yet you have to realize that half the population of New York could not vote at that time. They were ruled by the other half. And so, you know, there are some things that are so alien to us. And yet there are some things that will be so familiar to us. The next person we have is Carla. And after Carla will be Diana Noriega. Reese, I got to tell you, I've read all the, I've read all the Evans books. I've read all the Molly Murphy books. And I am now reading the new Georgiana books. I love Royal Spinus series. I think it is the funniest thing and it's just fabulous. Tell us a little bit about how that series started and uh, just how you developed some of those characters. I think at the beginning, that first book where we meet Belinda and, and Georgie and they're and they're so different and they're out there at these parties and all these places. That is absolutely, you can't read that and not be hooked on the rest of the series. It's wonderful. Well, thank you, Carla. I'm glad, I'm so glad you're enjoying it. As I say, I really enjoy writing this one. It came about by a strange method. My publisher kept saying to me, I was writing Molly Murphy, of course, kept saying, we can't really break you out unless you write us a big, dark standalone novel. So I kept thinking, oh, goodness, what could that be? It could. And I kept thinking, you know, terrorists, child molesters, serial killers. <laughs> and I suddenly thought, do I want to spend six months in darkness? And I thought, no, I don't. So what would be the most unlikely sleuth I could possibly come up with? Well, how about if she was royal? But she was penniless. And it was the 1930s, the Great Depression. How would she survive? What would she have to do to survive? And so I wrote in her first person, actually, the first chapter of her Royal Spinus has not changed since that first time I put down her thoughts, sent it to my, my agent loved it, we sent it to my editor who went, no, no, that wasn't what we wanted at all. So it was put out to other publishers, one of whom snapped it up. And it's been a joy ever since. And the interesting thing is, uh, the man I married comes from a very aristocratic family. And still in Britain, he has cousins with very silly nicknames. And when I used to go to, in the early days of the marriage, we'd go and stay with relatives. And we'd have relatives there who had been alive in the 1930s and who spoke that way still. And so I'd be sitting there and one woman would say, oh, do you remember that joke we played on the butler? And I think, oh, this is good stuff. And I have to write it down. So I got, I've got a lot of material from John's family. And I know how the people spoke. You know, the, the fact is, when I was a child, there were still people who 
said things like, oh, come on, old bean, you are a brick. And, you know, I know how people spoke in the 1930s, so I can bring it all to life. I've tried to make the characters, I think, I've maybe there's slight exaggerations on reality, but not really. You know, there are plenty of really strange British aristocrats out there. So we have Georgie's brother, clueless brother, Binky, and his really horrible wife, Fig, whose real name is Hilda, of course. And then we have Georgie's mother, who came from a humble background, but has been, was a famous actress and then married Georgie's uh, royal father. And of course, since divorced and has been, as I put it in the books, many things to many men on six of seven continents. So you can see that she gets around a bit. And then her father, who's Georgie's other grandfather, I've made him a delightful, warm, simple Cockney grandfather. He brings into her life that sort of warmth and unconditional love she's never had. You know, she's been raised by a nanny in very austere conditions. And here's this old man who really doesn't have much in life, but just loves her. And I think that's been wonderful for her through all the books. And her friend Belinda, her naughty friend Belinda, we've followed, if you've followed the books through the series, we're up to book 15 now. I'm just writing book 16. Belinda has done, has had a sort of a, a wayward up and down life. I want to get Belinda into a good place, but she won't stay there. You know, I just find a nice man for her and everything. And then she goes off again. She's very annoying. That's the thing. You create these characters, but then it's their story after that. And I can't stop them from rushing off and doing things on their own. So um, you never know what they're going to do next. But um, my favorite character, I think, or one of my favorites was... I wanted in one of the books, Georgie has to have a maid. And I wanted the worst maid in the universe. And so Queenie showed up and she really is the worst maid in the universe. And if you read the books, you'll see she doesn't get much better as the series goes along. All right, Diana Noriega, you are next. Hello. I have read all of your books that are available through the National Library Service. I love them all. I love quirky characters. I love personalities that seem to walk off the page on their own. And there are people you would love to know, even the obnoxious ones, because <laughs> they make you laugh. I loved the Molly Murphy series so much that when my granddaughter, we bought a pony and we didn't care for her name, she became Molly Murphy. <laughs> because she was a, a beautiful little paint pony, very sassy, but very smart and a willing horse, which is what you want for a child, a horse that yeah. has heart. Yeah. Yeah. And our Molly Murphy did. Oh, <laughs> and she raised my granddaughter. Oh, wonderful. Um, it's a joy to have a chance to tell you how much your books have meant to me. I'm Native American, and I've been blind since I was eight. And I went off to university during the late 60s and early 70s. First one in my family to go to university. So I show up on campus with my long braids and my long skirts, and everyone thinks I'm a flower child. And <laughs> I'm actually a master sergeant's daughter who is brought up to respect her elders, to be soft-spoken, and to always remember that the eyes of the world were on me. Because when you come from us, they already make so many assumptions about who you are, that your manners must be better, your courtesy must be higher, and your morals must be very high because <laughs> you're carrying the burden of being a princess, <laughs> even if you're wow. not royal, because yeah. you represent your people. And so I could understand how sometimes the burdens are huge 
but the determination is also huge because you are carrying the flag for your people. So you have to give life your best effort. Just wanted to thank you for what you do. Well, Diana, that's wonderful. So thank thank you so much. And what what an interesting take on the fact that how you you know you're representing your nation, and so you have to be you have to be better better in every way because you are representative. I'm looking at your picture, and you have the most gorgeous dog too. I'd like to hug him. All right. Next up, we have Mary Beth. And thank you so much, Reese. I have I have had so much joy from your books. Spent so many happy fun hours with you. Yes, I learned a lot too, but I had a lot of fun. As you can probably guess, my favorite series is the Spiders one, but I haven't read the Molly Murphy books yet, but I, I will. I've read some of the standalones, which I've also liked, but I also wanted to thank you for the number of books that are available through the National Library Service for the Blind, but also for, on Bookshare and on Audible, because I've, I've found them in lots and lots of places, and I just wanted to say that I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. I, I love the fact that my books are available in audio because it's interesting to me. A few years ago, audio was really a very small part for, for sighted people, a very small part of their, their reading experience. And now I have so many people who say to me, oh, I buy your book on Kindle to read and then I buy it in on audio for when I'm walking the dog or when I'm doing the laundry or something. I think I'm more aware now. Obviously, I don't write my books specifically with audio in mind, but I am very aware of, of the fact that they are going to be read. And often I will read a, th a, a scene out loud to myself to see which sentences sound clumsy and which might be difficult or too long for someone to read. And so I'm, I'm really aware of that now. I'm so glad they are available everywhere. And I've, I've been lucky. I've had the most wonderful narrators on, on Audible. I hope yours are equally good on the, on the service for the blind. You know, the ones on Audible really do bring the books to life in a, in a fantastic way. And next up, we have Terry. Thank you, Reese. It is so phenomenal that you are on this program. I'm repeating, but I utterly adore your work. And I'm a series fiend. I read series. Without a doubt, your series each are so true to their own detail and their own history. I see a number of series I read have you know, where it's very clear that the author forgot who did what in the last book or whose name was what or whatever, and things conflict a little bit. I was wondering, when you enter the world of, say, Molly Murphy or uh, Spinus or whichever, how do you double check your details and your characters? Do you have to have like a little... Uh, playbook that you refer to, or is it all just in your head in that compartment when you go in there to write? Hi, Terry. I do keep a series Bible with, uh, in fact, for each of the books, my publisher, when they do the copy edits, they will send a little style sheet that has all of the names on it that will say, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so hat maker or something. And so I can keep that to look at if I need to. With all the main characters and everything, you know, it's like if you if you go home to your family in another state, you don't have to be reminded who everybody is because they're very familiar to you. And that's 
pretty much the same to me. All of the main characters, I know. I just have to check on, you know, if we'd had a policeman in book two and I want a different policeman in book 15, I have to double check that he does have a different name. So they're the background names that I have to check on. Hello, Reese. I want to first thank you so much for not only being here today and being a part of Writing Works Wonders and our community events and what an amazing turnout here today, but also you are one of the reasons uh, you brought the love of reading back to me. And I had not been reading for a very long time. In 2019, I started, I got Kindle, started reading uh, and found the genre that I enjoy the most, which is historical fiction, uh, really around World War I, World War II, and women. And so it will be no surprise to you how much I really have enjoyed the Victory Garden, as well as in Farley Field. And I just wanted to thank you. So that's it. Oh, Cindy, thank you so much. I I think every book that I've written has been a book that I wanted to read, but I couldn't find on the shelf. So I think we share the same interests. It, it just has been really amazing, actually, and empowering for me as a woman who is blind and just, you know, in day-to-day life now uh, to read what some of the women went through in those trying times in our history. It's pretty amazing and pretty empowering to think that they could and we may not be working in the fields or flying airplanes or whatever it might be, but we still can be what we want to be and extend ourselves beyond what others believe we can be. So anyway, thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you, Cindy. And I think that's interesting that, you know, we think, oh, poor us when we're stuck at home with limitations during a year of COVID. And then in England, they went through five years of never knowing when they were going to be bombed. It's a sobering thought. Next up, we have Carol. Thank you. Thank you for your awareness in your writing of the audible of the of the the what what will it sound like? That's a really interesting. I'll, I'll have to take that to my writing. I am one of the probably only people on this call that has not read any of her books, but I am headed to grab a bunch. (laughs) Um, I am also a series reader, but what I'm going to put you on spot. What would you suggest as here I am, I'm a brand new untouched person by (laughs) where would you have me go for my first book? Well, I think it depends on how, what sort of mood you're in right now and what you like to read. Obviously, with a series, you've now got The Royal Spinus or The Molly Murphy in my two current series. So if you like your books to be fairly meaty, historical, with lots of real facts, and your heroine, she is struggling at a very difficult immigrant situation, then you should you should read Molly Murphy. And you could, I would start at the beginning always because... Every book is complete in itself. So if you happen to pick up one in the middle of the series, you wouldn't say, what is this? I don't know. The stories are complete in themselves, but you do have an ongoing relationships and ongoing character arc that goes through the whole series. So if you feel like Molly Murphy and you wanted it to be a little more sort of meaty and real history, then I would say start with Murphy's Law. If you feel right now that the world is a really annoying place and you'd like to just sit back and chuckle, and have sort of a challenging little mystery, but not with any blood gore and lots lots of fun characters, um, then I suggest you start with Her Royal Spinus. If you read on Kindle, then today, this very day, 
Her Royal Spiness is a book bub at 199. So I suggest you rush and snap it up today. And then you can read the first in that series. And we've now got 15 books in that series too. So you've got plenty of challenge ahead of you. Everybody, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm sorry we can't get to everyone. Reese, we are so appreciative of your time and that you've come here and you're with us. You're just a beautiful, beautiful woman and writer. Thank you. Would you let us know how people can find your books or contact you? Yes, I do. My website is www.reesebowen.com. And on the website, there is a contact Reese button. So you can just, that will come straight through to my personal email and I'll read it. If you're more interested in what I do day to day, you go to my, my Facebook author page and you'll find out when I do the ironing and when I've stubbed my big toe, <laughs> all the things that you might want to know about me. We need go to right mention ahead. Reese is spelled R-H-Y-S. For those that don't know, that are listening, R-H-Y-S. B-O-W-E-N dot com. Perfect, yes. And Cheryl, next week's writing prompt? Okay, yes, real quick. All right, next week, we would like you to, in 60 words or less, if I have never met you, tell me about yourself. Let me know who you are, but make yourself a character in a book. So let us know about you, but you're the character. Thank you, Reese, so much for being with us today. Thank yes. you, everyone, for making this another amazing episode. This has been just phenomenal to hear the background with Reese and so enjoyable to get to know her. Reese, you're wonderful. Thank you. Yes. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. And thank you, everybody. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all your questions. If you have a question <laughs> you're dying to ask me, you can always email me and I'll certainly respond. I answer all my emails. So Happy reading, everybody, and stay safe, please, still. On February 11th, you've been waiting for it. It's coming. Midwinter, round robin. You've heard about it, and this is our first one for 2022. Don't miss the Writing Works Wonders phenomenon of laughter and creativity. Next week at 1 p.m. Eastern, all are welcome to enjoy the fun. And in two weeks, February 18th, we have a workshop on journaling. Whether you are an aspiring writer, new or experienced author, we will explore journaling, do some activities, and discuss ways to leverage this simple writing strategy. Lisa, you may unmute. I have to tell you, you have to get an award for this show. This is <laughs> no. That was just, I'm, I'm not into it. You know, interviews never read her, and I'm going to go pick up. I'm going to go listen. I'm not really a reader. And you just make writing and reading so incredible. You cover the gambit. You, we have to figure out how to get you nominated for some kind of award. Oh, I know. They're, they're fabulous. <laughs> Thank okay. you, Lisa. You're lovely. Thank you. There's got to be a new term for hitting it out of the park because you went into the universe today. <laughs> she was really Thank great. You, Lisa. Does anybody have their response that they want to read? I, the writing prompt for this past week was, I walked into the darkened garage and I heard a slam and then I heard feet running down the pavement. I think Cheryl has one. Oh my gosh, where am I going to hide? Oh, wait. No, maybe I can fit. I'll fit behind that 
piece of plywood over there. Okay, I'm going to hide and I'm going to be really quiet because it might be more than one person. I wonder if it's Marlene. Maybe it's Carol. Maybe it's Deanna. Maybe it's Annie. Maybe it's Kathy. I don't know, but I better be quiet. And then I hear them coming. And when they get right next to me, I jump out and I say, boo! (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And one of those people um, that you want to hide behind doesn't want to be hidden because Marlene has her hand up. (laughs) So Marlene. Escape. As I walked into the dark garage, I heard a door slam and feet running down the pavement. Cautiously, I peered outside. Hearing a clanging, I grabbed a flashlight and dashed forward. Someone groaned, more clanging, and the odor of garbage permeated the air. What? In the world, from the ground, a gruntle voice moaned, Hi, Dad. And thank you, Marlene. <laughs> so I have Gail Johnson's I can read for us. As I walked into the dark garage, I heard a door slam and feet running down the pavement. I noticed some animal or person tried to unpack our latest cat food order from Chewy. The bits of box and dry food bags made a trail from the shelves under the door. Who's out there? I called as I opened the door. I was greeted by a large white bear that comes from the woods to visit us. He had scratches on his back, indicating he tried to use the large pet door to enter and exit the garage. Thank you for joining us today on Writing Works Wonders. Kathy and I are thrilled to spend time with you. A tap on that button that says subscribe so you will not miss our show. You can also tap on the link for writingworkswonders.com. It'll take you directly to all the show notes and information that we shared today. Then you can sign up to receive the Zoom link so that you can be live with us when we are recording. You can also contact us at info at writingworkswonders.com. Our phone number is 347-467-0221. We also have a donate button. All donations go to technical expenses that Kathy and I incur in order to keep this podcast going. Kathy and I want you to feel encouraged and inspired and know the wonder in writing. And until next time, our friends, keep on writing.